This is an ABC podcast. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in once again for Tom Switzer, who's on an extended break. On this week's program, Space. It's congested, competitive and contested. It's also a place where there are virtually no rules and self-interest is the prime motivator. Social scientist and lawyer Doug Legor explains why space needs to shed its Wild West image and how an international understanding about behaviour in space might be reached. The Lowy Institute's Richard McGregor joins us too to discuss China, Taiwan, President Biden's gaffes or otherwise and Beijing's reaction to Australia's new government. But first, to the US, where there was another mass shooting at a primary school, this time in Texas. Here's how US Senator Chris Murphy reacted. What are we doing? 14 kids dead in an elementary school in Texas right now. What are we doing? What are we doing? Just days after a shooter walked into a grocery store to gun down African-American patrons, we have another Sandy Hook on our hands. What are we doing? There have been more mass shootings than days in the year. Our kids are living in fear every single time they set foot in the classroom because they think they're going to be next. What are we doing? Why do you spend all this time running for the United States Senate? Why do you go through all the hassle of getting this job, of putting yourself in a position of authority? If your answer is that as this slaughter increases, as our kids run for their lives, we do nothing. What are we doing? Why are you here? if not to solve a problem as existential as this. That's the Democratic senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy, with a wake-up call for his colleagues just hours after the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in southwest Texas. Senator Murphy represents the town of Sandy Hook, where you'll remember in 2012, a 20-year-old shooter left 26 people dead after opening fire on a local primary school there. There's been widespread condemnation in the United States this week of the killings of 17 young children and two of their teachers at an elementary school in Texas. But that's about where the shared response ends. Mass killings, particularly involving military-style weapons, mark a fault line in American politics and society. On one side are the thoughts and prayers folk who send up divine wishes for those who have died and then advocate for better security in schools, higher fences or armed teachers. And on the other side, there are those who call for tighter gun regulation, legislative reform and an end to the influence of groups like the NRA or National Rifle Association. 
I'm joined now by Damien Cave. I'm pleased to say the Australia Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Hi, Damien. Hello. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, we both have school-aged kids, Damien, uh, and I was struck living in the US how widespread active shooter drills are in elementary and high schools. I think my daughter was seven when she first came home and told me her class had sat in the closet in the dark that afternoon to practice a bad guy drill. So to what extent do you think have mass killings like this become somewhat normalised in the US? I mean, sadly, I think it's become extremely normalized. When we lived in Brooklyn, my kids, you know, did active shooter drills, too. And, you know, one of the statistics I saw, you know, sometime this week was that there were you know, hundreds of thousands of American children who have now had their lives interrupted by some active shooter in their community. So it's not just at schools. It's, you know, think of even the, the shooting that was recently in Buffalo. If you're a kid playing baseball near that supermarket, your day is disrupted, too. The, the level of fear that American children have to sort of deal with at the capacity for a potential shooting is, is unique in the developed world. And it's just heartbreaking to see just how tolerant the society and culture has become of that. Yes. To share some of those statistics, guns are now apparently the leading cause of childhood deaths in America, topping even car accidents, which is stunningly awful. That's right. I mean, there, there are 400 million guns, I think, in the United States, so they now outnumber people. I mean, that's the extent to which the culture has become so gun-centric, and it's increased quite a bit just in the last few years. So what are the chances then, given that, that this event finally prompts some kind of a change in gun laws? Very, very slim. I mean, the the sad fact is that if the United States wanted to change its gun laws and its culture of guns and arms, it would take years, if not decades at this point. You know, there is simply no one in the Republican Party who is who is in a position of significant power, who is willing to say, yes, we need new gun laws. Yes, we need a new approach. You know, and as I just mentioned, with the number of guns that are already in circulation, even if you were to pass gun laws today, it wouldn't necessarily lead to a decrease in shootings. The United States, sadly, is going to be dealing with mass shootings and probably shootings that involve children for a number of years to come. That is the norm, unfortunately, and it's doesn't, it just doesn't seem possible to end that anytime soon. We heard a little bit of Chris Murphy earlier, who's the Democratic senator from Connecticut, who as a junior congressman responded to the horror of Sandy Hook because he represented um, that area in Newtown. Now, when he calls for a legislative response, when he calls for tougher gun laws, what's he talking about? What kind of reforms are they looking for? I mean, there's all kinds of just common sense gun laws that or gun changes to the laws that Americans support if you look at polls. One would be, you know, greater extent of background checks. One would be longer wait times. Another would be ways to eliminate giving guns to anyone who has had any mental health issues or is having a mental health issue. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that could be done just on, and that's sort of to deal with who gets the guns. Then there's a whole another category of potential reforms that involve certain kinds of weapons or certain kinds of ammunition that could be outlawed or banned or at least made much more difficult to purchase. And so, you know, those are probably the two categories. Um, you know, I think anyone who's looking for stronger gun regulation would frankly just like to see progress in any direction. Um, and, you know, Murphy is one of the leading sort of arguments, arguers for that. But again, it's just really hard to see it happening. It's it's gun culture has become something that goes beyond the National Rifle Association. It's become something that's intimately tied to identity and it comes from the grassroots. There are many, many Americans who simply will not brook any possibility of restrictions on guns that they own or that they want to own. 
Joe Biden, of course, as as um, vice president, was put in charge of gun reform by President Obama after the Sandy Hook massacre. So he has effectively fought for decades now um, for gun reform, achieving, it must be said, only modest advances. How much power does he have now to affect change this time around? I mean, very little. He's got the bully pulpit and he's been using that quite a bit, um, as have others. And, you know, but you still need Congress to pass these laws. You still need, you know, a very tightly contested, you know, legislative body to say, okay, we're going to change the way we deal with this. We're going to overhaul this in a way not unlike Australia did in the 90s, not unlike the way New Zealand did after the Christchurch attacks in 2019. And, you know, United States politics is just really stuck in its trenches of polarization and division. And it's very, very hard to get Republicans to move on this. And, you know, some Democrats, too. But it's 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 just something that feels helpless, I think, for a lot of Americans. And and President Biden, I think, at times, despite all the power that's invested in him as the president, also feels helpless sometimes. And I think that's sometimes what you hear in his commentary. There are kind of glimmers of kind of increments of change, though, in the sense that the NRA, whose position seemed absolutely unshakable, five years ago, almost eight years ago, is now it's been facing its own financial problems. There have been questions asked of its leadership. It's under more scrutiny, perhaps, than it's ever been before. Is it, to some extent, losing its grip on the argument? I think that that's the case. The NRA is kind of a mess, frankly, as an organization. But, you know, at this point, after decades and decades of power, it's become totally entrenched within the Republican Party. So that what you have is a situation where if you're a Republican candidate, one of the ways to signal to your base that you're more conservative than your rival is to say, well, I want to just allow everyone to have every right to guns. I will never, ever allow any kind of restriction. And so within Republican primaries and within the Republican Party, gun rights have become a litmus test and a way to kind of rally the base. So even separate from the NRA, it's very, very hard to move because the political situation in the Republican Party is so, so strict on this issue. You know, there are some cases perhaps in states where they're they're in, you know, marginal districts or competitive districts. But the reality is that there's so many gerrymandered districts in the United States that most Republicans are not threatened by a Democrat. They're threatened by someone further to the right within the Republican Party. And so you have a contest and a spiral toward the right wing within the Republican Party, and that includes gun rights. And gun rights is really a marker of conservatism for a lot of Americans who live in those communities. And so it's very, very hard to get anything to change, regardless of what the NRA does. Damien? While I have you, can we just touch on George Floyd? I, I mentioned his name because it's two years this week since his murder by the national by the police officer Derek Chauvin in um, in Minneapolis. That act prompted a national and indeed kind of international reaction with Black Lives Matter marches from the US to Europe to Australia. But now that two years has passed, looking back, do you think we can say with any confidence that his death and the reaction that followed it? has prompted any kind of meaningful change or improved accountability? I think there is improved accountability in some local communities. There are a number of you know, big city police departments that have really taken reform on quite a bit. Um, President Biden this week has also announced you know, different ways to add accountability for police forces. So I do think there's been some progress. But like everything in the United States, it's very much a patchwork degree of reform. There are some 
police departments that have not changed at all. Um, there are some departments, you know, that are probably worse than they were then that are simply flying under the radar. But, you know, there are also places that I think have really taken this reckoning that the country was going through and tried to apply it in their communities. You know, it's hard to sort of find that in the statistics. But, um, you know, according to our reporters on the ground and other people who live in some of these communities who I know, there is, there is some progress being made. But as President Biden has said, it's very slow. It's very incremental. And for most people, it's very, very frustrating because they want to see more. Uh, it's been quite the kind of political um, introduction to the presidency for the, Joe Biden, hasn't it? This, I suppose for this first act, you know, race, guns, abortion rights, three touchstone issues in American politics have all been simmering away. To what extent do you think those issues will come into play in the midterms in November? Of course, primaries are happening. People are, are gearing up for those already. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's very hard to tell. I mean, as is the case in Australia in any country, voters' memories tend to be short. So it's hard to know, you know, in May, whether or not when they go to the polls in November, these will be the issues that resonate. You know, there are economic issues that are continual. Um, there are issues of race that are continual. So some of these things probably will be bubbling up, but it's really kind of hard to tell what will happen in November. Um, what we do know so far from the primaries, though, is that there does seem to be a little bit more moderation um, than might have been expected. You know, there are a handful of candidates who President Trump clearly endorsed and wanted to win, who did not win their primary cases. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing an election sort of shape up that, you know, has some some real hot button races in which, you know, it's going to be very closely fought between a Democrat and Republican who maybe did not choose to side with President Trump. And we have some cases where there are candidates who are favored on that far right wing who, uh, you know, who may who at this point maybe are thought they're long shots. But, you know, lots of people thought President Trump would be a long shot, too. Watching the Liberal Party um, post-election here and the kind of debate and discussion that's happening about which direction the Liberal Party should take in opposition, should it dive further to the right and address those culture wars kinds of issues head on or should they pull back to the centre? It's very re reminiscent, isn't it, of the Republicans post-Trump. Do you have any kind of any reflections on, on that in comparative terms? <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about the Australian system is because of compulsory voting, the, the potential risks of going further to the right are far more significant because you have to appeal not just to your base, but to a wider swath of the electorate. So there's a greater risk of electoral loss for the for the Liberal Party to go further to the right than there is for the American Republican Party. For the American Republicans, they can rally their base in districts where they've drawn the lines around the districts and they can still win. Um, and so that's in part the system, frankly, in the United States is, is increasingly encouraging more extremism on both sides, whereas Australia still has a system, I think, that there's more incentives to move back to the middle. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what they are going to want to do or what they're going to choose to do. For, for many conservatives in the Anglosphere, there's this feeling that that sort of grievance politics that Trump won on is something that is a bigger is a very big proportion of the electorate um, in Australia and England and other places. And so they they very well may bet that that's the path back to victory. And, you know, who knows? It's possible that they're right. But it seems like a much bigger risk in Australia than it does in the United States. Damien, thank you. That's been quite the tour through American <laughs> uh, issues and politics and Australia as well. But really appreciate you joining us. Yes, no worries. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's Damien Cave, the Bureau Chief for the New York Times here in Australia. 
On ABC Radio National or on the ABC Listen app, I'm Kylie Morris and coming up next on Between the Lines, a review of the grand tours by the US President and Chinese Foreign Minister through the Asia-Pacific. The US President this week visited Tokyo and it was there at a press conference where he again tripped over the US commitment to a one-China policy and strategic ambiguity on Taiwan. When Joe Biden was asked whether the US would get involved militarily to defend Taiwan from a hostile Beijing, President Biden answered with a distinctly unambiguous yes. To understand more of what that means and how that news would have gone down in Beijing, I'm joined by Richard McGregor from the Lowy Institute. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. Now, I should say the White House, of course, scrambled to clarify there'd been no actual change in policy on Taiwan. But I do think this is the third time, is it, that President Biden has misspoken, in quotation marks, on Taiwan. How do you interpret what happened? Well, I still think we're trying to get to the bottom of it. I mean, as you say, this is about the third time that uh, President Biden has done that. Um, you know, the first time it might be a gaffe. After that, one starts to wonder. I mean, the the the, the issue lying behind this is uh, America's Taiwan policy. Now, for years, um, the US has had a policy, as you mentioned, called strategic ambiguity. And that means they don't say whether or not they're going to uh, defend Taiwan from a possible uh, Chinese attack, you know, keep them guessing, in other words. Um, and, uh, you know, successive presidents have, fo presidents have followed that. Not only that, when some um, prominent foreign policy commentators in America uh, argued recently that the US should abandon that policy, President Biden sent out his uh, senior uh, White House officials like Kurt Campbell at the National Security Council and told them to shut it down and to reaffirm that policy. And yet when Biden himself is asked about this issue, he keeps just coming out and saying, yes, we will uh, defend uh, Taiwan. Um, and there's, there's another reason for it, by the way. One reason is the sort of keep China guessing argument, even though I think China knows pretty well that America probably would be there. But the other argument in favour of the policy is to not let Taiwan itself backslide. In other words, if the Taiwanese think, oh, gosh, the Americans will bail us out, they won't do anything for their own, in their own defence. And Washington doesn't want that either. So that's the reason for the policy, um, whether... Um, you know, Pre President Biden has dumped it gaff after gaff by gaff um, uh, remains to be seen, but it certainly seems that way. Is it unsettling for Beijing to, to hear these repeated gaffes, if they are in fact that? I, I don't think so. Um, I think what is annoying for Beijing is that they claim that, you know, Washington is gradually changing all manner of its Taiwan policy, sending higher uh, level delegations there, sending um, more senior Marines and the like to train the Taiwanese, uh, changing the wording of the Taiwan policy, although not necessarily the meaning on the State Department website. And this is just another part of what they think is the US creeping away from the one China policy. Uh, I don't know whether that's really true, but it's certainly trying to change the dynamics of the Taiwan issue a little bit. Isn't there a question of 
consistency too, to go very kind of big picture, while Joe Biden is trying to drum up support for uh, Ukraine and trying to ensure that there are uh, there's at least a defensive posture from NATO and from the US and other allies toward protecting and defending Ukraine against Moscow, then presumably the Taiwanese could also be saying to Washington, listen, you'd do the same for us, wouldn't you? Yes, I guess so. Well, but in some ways, the US is already doing for Taiwan what it does for Ukraine because um, it's not uh, uh, directly intervening in Ukraine. It's supplying it with weapons. And that's precisely what the US does with Taiwan. In fact, it's required to do that by law, the so-called Taiwan Relations Act. Um, so they're, they're kind of already doing that. Um, and I think the Biden administration's approach to Ukraine is to avoid a superpower war. And in fact, in the case of Taiwan, they appear to be uh, doing the opposite, you know, engaging or readying for a clash with uh, China. So I think that's the way in which it's inconsistent. And I guess if Beijing is looking to sort of read the runes on this, or at least understand, you know, this new American president's mood on, on Taiwan and China's place, in the Pacific, they may also be looking at things like Joe Biden's kind of new collective of nations that doesn't, you know, a club that where neither China nor Taiwan is invited, you know, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity, as it's called. I mean, Biden is very much, very overtly strengthening East Asian ties that don't include ties with Beijing. Yes, well, that's right. And as you say, this new uh, economic plan they've got does also not include Taiwan, even though Taiwan is part of uh, APEC, for example. It's there as a customs entity or uh, an economy. Um, but, you know, I think the the Indo-Pacific fra economic framework, which has just been announced, um, uh, is about strengthening U.S. relations uh, in Asia, but it's particularly about trying to, you know, the U.S. in Asia is heavily military-weighted, overweighted, um, China is by far the biggest economic player uh, in the region. It's by far the biggest trade player. And the US is, you know, being constantly told by countries like Australia that they have to have reweight their presence in the region as well. But, you know, hence this strategy announced this week. But it's kind of difficult for the US because that strategy sounds fantastic, but it includes no goodies for Asian countries. There's no extra market access to the U.S. included in it, because, of course, U.S. Congress these days in the era of Donald Trump simply won't uh, accept opening their markets uh, any further. So it's a kind of grand gesture, but it's left a lot of people, I think, uh, underwhelmed. You could also suggest that the Chinese are engaging in some theatre of their own at the moment. The Chinese foreign minister is on this 10-day-long tour through the Pacific, beginning with the Solomons, but with multiple other stops. Um, how, how consequential is this? You know, I think it's um, uh, a really big deal, actually. And, you know, with anything the Chinese do, there is a lot of theatre in it. It's, you know, much like a Chinese New Year, New Year letting off crackers in the street to gain attention and the like. So they're, they're definitely doing that. But it's a big deal in other ways as well, because, I mean, China has been in the Pacific for some time, um, really, I guess, with its foot forward since about 2006 or so. But, you know, it's done stuff like it builds roads, it builds soccer stadiums, um, it builds buildings for governments in the region and the like. 
nearly always by, you know, by lending them money. But this is altogether qualitatively differently because Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, is going there trying to sign a deal on security issues, you know, data issues, cyber issues. So it's a real step up from the sort of classic, you know, development aid and support that China had been giving to Pacific countries uh, to something which is much more political and frankly, much more, I think, um, unsettling for Pacific nations as well. So we'll know by the end of it uh, how many nations have actually signed up to this uh, new Chinese plan. It follows on hard, of course, from from President Biden's visit uh, to East Asia, but also to the election of a new government in Australia, we should mention. Is there anything, do you think, in that timing, just as the Albanese government's getting settled? Here are the Chinese, you know, parading through through the Pacific. Look, I could be wrong, but I think that's more serendipitous for the Chinese than anything else. Um, you know, we tend in Australia to think it's all about us, but I think the bigger competition is between the US uh, and China. Uh, remember that the preceding the Wang Yi um, grand tour through the Pacific, uh, China signed uh, the a security uh, DAC, uh, pact with the Solomon Islands. Um, so they're already sort of part way down um, uh, that that route, and and this is to try and uh, extend that. It's quite possible, though, that you know, um, such as Beijing's um, you know distaste and fury for Australia these days, that they have accelerated these um, uh, initiatives in the Pacific because they like, frankly, to uh, stick it up us and, um, and make it look like our policy uh, is failing. But I'm not persuaded that they've timed it exquisitely with the uh, Australian election. How aware do you think Chinese, regular Chinese citizens would be of their government's forays into the Pacific? Is this being trumpeted by Beijing? Is it seen as being packaged as evidence of Beijing's kind of expansive powers? I don't think the ordinary Chinese citizen would be very aware of it uh, at all. Um, and if they were, and if they knew that China were giving away money to Pacific countries, they wouldn't be happy with it because this is what's happened in the past in, uh, you know, whereas China, for example, held grand China-Africa summits in Beijing and trumpeted uh, large amounts of money that, uh, that were being given away. And there was a huge backlash on the internet from average citizens in China who, it turns out, uh, like giving money to foreigners uh, as much as <laughs> any people in Australia, the US and the UK um, and the like. But I think internally, um, say in the ruling Communist Party and in the foreign policy establishment and the like, I think there's an element of, you know, messi messaging up to, you know, Chairman Xi that China is making great advances um, uh, around the world and in this case in a theatre which has really been dominated by the US and its allies like Australia um, and, you know, uh, you know, the good work goes on from uh, Chairman Xi's loyal officials. You mentioned that things aren't, things aren't great at the moment between uh, Beijing and Canberra, but there were nice words, at least officially, uh, from Beijing uh, after, the, uh, after the election for the incoming Prime Minister uh, and his cabinet. In real terms, though, how do we start to tell what signs might we look for to indicate that the relationship is on the mend? What are the peace offerings that, that might come first? Well, I'm not 
you know, overly excited by these uh, overtures by uh, China. I mean, first of all, if they did want to have a reset, as some people say, then they wouldn't be signing a security deal in the Solomons. You know, they would have talked to us about that first, etc. Now, I'm not saying they should have. They'll, they're going to do what they want. But, you know, Wang Yi's grand tour in the Pacific does not quite scream reset with Australia. Um, having said that, um, I do think that uh, both countries would like at least to, you know, dial down the level of acrimony. Um, they would like to, um, certainly Australia, and Australia's already said this, under the previous government, happy to resume ministerial talks. There are things that we can talk about, you know, green hydrogen, uh, climate change. Um, China wants to talk to us about the big regional trade agreement. The, it's a mouthful, the CTTPP and the like. But, you know, I tell you, you know, a gesture of good faith would be to remove uh, the trade sanctions against Australia, and there's absolutely no sign of that happening. Richard, much to you over there. Thank you so much for joining us. Excellent. Thank you very much. That's Richard McGregor, Senior Fellow for East Asia at the Lowy Institute. On ABC Radio National or on the ABC Listen app, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris. Thanks for joining me. Coming up next, space. As the RAND Corporation's Doug Legor explains, it's about to get pretty crowded up there in space and not having much in the way of road rules or even agreed standards of behaviour will make developing that shared resource so much harder. kilometres above the Earth's surface is where you'll find the Kármán line. Cross that, and many agree, you're officially in outer space. It's where you say goodbye to national boundaries and controlled airspace. It's also where you'll find, unlike back on Earth, a notable absence of rules, regulations, laws and conventions. It's a little bit like the Wild West up there. Now, in the next year alone, Japan, South Korea, Russia, India, the UAE and the United States all intend to send missions to the moon. Then there's the satellites from just about every developed nation orbiting the Earth. Private companies are out there too. And now it's become a tourist hotspot for billionaires. It's getting crowded and without a few road rules or agreed standards of behaviour, it could all end badly. To discuss governance in space, I'm delighted to welcome to the program Douglas Legor, a senior behavioural and social scientist and a member of the Enterprise Space Initiative at the RAND Corporation. He's also the co-author of a chapter in the NATO Legal Gazette titled Nasty, Brutish and Short, The Future of Space Operations in the Absence of the Rule of Law. Doug, you've come off a long flight. We do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, you describe space as being congested, competitive and contested. So let's start with a congested part. Just how busy has it become in the last couple of decades? It's quite remarkable, actually. Um, when we started sending up satellites, um, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, around that time frame, there was about, you know, 750 satellites, all, of course, from the USSR and, and the United States. Um, and I think as of uh, about January, there were uh, about 12,500 
and about 3,000 of those are now derelict. Um, they're, they're simply, uh, they're junk up, up in space. And about another 4,800, 4,500, 4,800 are, are functional satellites, um, and, and the rest have either burned up or been thrown into what they call a, a graveyard a graveyard orbit. Now, companies and countries intend on sending tens of thousands of more satellites into a low Earth orbit and into a stationary orbit within the next couple of decades. So it, it's about to get very, very crowded. Those figures are um, mind-boggling, I've got to say, but I'm interested in the garbage. Can we start with that? Certainly. So the, the uncontrolled debris, we're talking about satellites that are redundant for example what 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 specifically uh, does the that notion of debris um, account for so debris comes like most garbage it, it comes in a lot of different categories um, certainly satellites that um, just uh, and uh, come to the end of their life exhaust their fuel or their battery power or they simply break um, and they're non-functioning and can't be fixed. So that's one type of, of debris. But a lot of debris is, is the, uh, the propulsion methods and uh, items that we use to send satellites into orbit. So the, the rocket boosters and the bodies and the, the various um, equipment that is part of the, of the rocket itself that sends the satellite into orbit uh, often becomes just pieces of debris circling the earth in different, at different levels, uh, different altitudes uh, orbiting the earth. Sometimes it's low earth, low, low, uh, low earth orbits and they burn up, but uh, other pieces of junk can stay in, in orbit around the earth for decades and, and even centuries. Now, what happens to a lot of these, um, these greater pieces is they break up over time. Some of them explode, some of them just degrade, and they create finer items of, of debris. Also, when we have activities up in space, you know, when we do, when the International Space Station does a spacewalk or, um, you know, when we've had uh, other, other manned space flights up in, up in orbit, um, those tend to leave debris. Everything from astronauts' wrench to um, paint chips to bolts to uh, anything and everything. And all of that is just rotating around the Earth. And there's about 36, over 36,000 pieces that are about a softball, uh, about 10 centimeters in diameter and greater. Um, those can be easily tracked, but there's about a million that are about one centimeter in, in up to 10 centimeters that are very difficult to track. Um, and any of those can destroy or disrupt or disable a satellite or, or a space station. Doug, talk to me about the Kessler syndrome. I did a little bit of reading around this, and I've got to say, slightly terrifying. I'm guessing if that, that syndrome is correct, that's very bad, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to say, um, you know, the, the literature, the scientific literature is uh, a little mixed on, on the Kessler syndrome. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like or when it's going to happen. But basically what it is, is, you know, Dr. Kessler who worked for NASA, uh, did a lot of research in this area. And he said, you know, at some point, you know, you're going to have 
so much debris up there that's uncontrolled that you cannot maneuver that it's going to start crashing into each other. And as it crashes into each other, of course, it, it shatters and breaks and, and makes even more pieces. So you have a cascade effect after a while where, you know, entire orbits, you could essentially lose them, right? Because there's just too much debris in that particular orbit for you to put a satellite or, a sh or, uh, or any kind of space object into that orbit any longer. And we don't know whether Mother Earth will sort of reach a point of equilibrium um, with, these, with, with, this, with certain amounts of junk in these orbits or not. We, we just, we're, we're not certain, but it, it, it is, the math, the math is very scary that at some point you do have enough collisions and enough debris generating debris that you can learn, you can lose parts of, of low earth orbit and geostationary orbit, orbit which are very, very important for, for us to, to rely on in terms of everything we rely on satellites for. Doug, even before we reach that point of a critical mass of garbage basically swirling endlessly mm. and making it all impossible, are we already at the stage where you're constantly needing to move satellites, to move orbits, to avoid junk and, and near misses? Yes. The International Space Station satellites that, that, that countries and operators control um, get literally thousands of, of warnings now that a conjunction or what they call a conjunction, a collision might, might occur. And, and now many of those, they, they don't have to maneuver. Uh, the, the piece of debris is further, far enough away from the satellite where it doesn't have to maneuver. However, you know, there are, you know, probably hundreds of, of, possible conjunctions a week where satellite operators do have to maneuver now uh, to make sure that they, um, that they don't collide, um, you know, losing the functionality of the satellite and creating even more debris. Um, and that, that will get worse because we keep, we keep generating more debris. We're doing it at a lower rate, but we keep generating more debris. Is there any legal recourse Imagine, I don't know, if you're in the International Space Station and a particular piece of junk comes barreling toward you and you can't avoid it uh, and damage is done. And if it were possible to analyse where that junk came from, is there any way that you can, I don't know, sue for damages? The space station can sue for damages. A, a particular astronaut who dropped his spanner or... Or a, <laughs> or a private company who who right. didn't take enough kind of due diligence and care to to track their satellite. Right, right. The errant astronaut glove, right? That's, That's going eight thousand meters per second and smashes into your satellite array. Um, there is the Liability Convention, nineteen seventy two treaty, um, which deals with this issue. However. It's woefully inadequate to deal with the situation you just described, which is a great, great question. Uh, it's really the $64,000 question in a lot of ways. So the liability convention basically assigns absolute liability to the launching state and the registering state of a, um, of a, of a space object while it's you know, within the atmosphere, or if it falls on Earth and, and damages something. It's absolute liability. All you have to do is show that this owner, uh, uh, registrant or launch, uh, launching country is, 
belongs to that satellite and it's absolute liability. They, they have to pay for, for pay for the damages. However, once you leave the atmosphere and you go into space, the liability convention assigns uh, liability in terms of fault. But to go back to a question, you, your point you made earlier, there are there is no rules to assign fault right now in space. So basically, everything's kind of a game of chicken. Um, if your debris or your satellite's coming at me, you're a threat to me, but I'm coming at you, so I'm a threat to you. And so mutual no destruction, rule. mutual destruction yes. is the thing that's keeping keeping us at right. all together at the moment, or the threat thereof. It, the threat thereof, but there's no rule as to who has to move. So, in order, in in you know, in 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 standard um, international tort liability, um, in in common law liability, uh, in order to determine fault, you generally you start with with a rule because you have to determine who's negligent. To get back to your earlier point, who's at fault, right? Who's negligent? Um, you, you, it's impossible really to determine negligence unless you have a rule because the rule tells you who violated the duty of care, right? The rule tells you, uh, okay, you had a stop sign. You had to stop, right? You violated that rule. You had a duty to follow that rule. You didn't do it. You went through it. You smashed into me. You're at fault. Um, there, are, there are no rules, to determine this in space. So, so, so the for wild, example, sorry, Doug, the Wild West analogy is actually in this case correct. The Wild West analogy is much more correct, I think, in in this instance um, than it is in some other instances. Yes, ab- absolutely. So, the way that you describe it, then, if it, leaving aside the kind of the absence of rules and the and the questions over liability and legal recourse. As you describe it, it seems that self-interest is the thing that uh, most likely keeps these operations safe in the sense that if you're a bad actor, so if you're a company that doesn't take responsibility for satellites that are made redundant, if you're not doing everything you can to try and reduce the junk in space, then there's every chance that the next time you launch a satellite, then it might be, it might collide with someone else's junk. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be uh, a malicious actor or even a negligent actor. In 2009, uh, Iridium um, uh, had a satellite that collided with a derelict uh, Soviet era satellite. Now, Iridium was warned ahead of time by by the United States Air Force, who who does this this tracking, um, that this derelict um, satellite was headed for their communication satellite. Iridium disagreed that uh, that it was going that there was going to be a conjunction because all of these are determined by algorithms. It's really very difficult when something's tumbling around in space to determine exactly where it's going to be from one point to the next. So Iridium essentially just made a business decision that they were not going to expend the fuel necessary to, ma- to maneuver because expending fuel is, is expensive and it reduces the life cycle. It reduces the lifespan of your satellite. Um, but that was the wrong business decision. And now we continue to live with the debris, the thousands of pieces of debris from that collision. Uh, again, there was no rule that Iridium had to move. Um, no one could force 
iridium to move. There's not an enforcement mechanism. There's not a compliance standard. There's not a compliance framework. Um, they simply, based on their risk profile, made a business decision. Um, so when you get to talk about nefarious actors and somebody that, you know, Basically, uh, their risk tolerance doesn't exist. I mean, they're willing to um, they're they're willing to just do damage. Um, you know that that's the worst case scenario. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris, and my guest is Doug Legor, who's a senior behavioral social scientist and a member of the Enterprise Space Initiative at the Rand Corporation. Doug, let's turn to this question of competition in space. I mean, you talk sure. about the sheer kind of mind-boggling number of satellites that you know are either in orbit or have been registered to go into orbit. How intense has that is that competition expected to become? Well, it's it's expected to become very very um, fierce because for example in uh, in geostationary orbit there's there's only a there's limited real estate, right? So, so the, these are the orbits where the satellite basically tracks with the Earth. So you can keep your satellite on a specific area of the Earth all the time. Um, it's they're, they're you know they're very important uh, orbits, um, but because they use uh, radio spectrum to to communicate, you can you can't you know like put two satellites right next to each other; they'll interfere with each other. Right, so there's very limited amount of real estate in geostationary orbit, uh, and companies are essentially trying to get as many of these slots in the orbit as they can. Now, the International Telecommunications Union divides up these slots and gives a certain amount of spectrum to each country. But there's also a lot of spectrum that's sort of, Frank, it's unassigned, basically. Um, And it's a first come, first serve. So companies are basically trying to lock these slots up um, and lock them up uh, indefinitely if they can, Um, which, uh, of course, then blocks other future spacefaring nations uh, out of those orbits and basically captures the market. It's real estate. It's real estate. Yeah, it's real estate. It's real estate. It's location, 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 <laughs> basically. <laughs> and, and if you have money and resources, you get the best location um, and you can box other, other uh, operators out. Doug, uh, if you think about, I suppose, the, the increased risk of collisions that you're describing, the fact that there are more and more spacefaring nations and companies uh, and a, a growing risk of points of conflict, surely, surely, uh, call me old-fashioned, but isn't, isn't the situation now calling out for a, a mature system of governance then? I mean, based on the research that we're doing at RAND, I think the answer to that question is yes. Um, I think um, the reliance on voluntary uh, norms and voluntary behaviors is sort of what's gotten us into this mess, right? Because nations and, and, and operators can pick and choose which standards they want to apply when, right? And getting back to the Iridium example, they can do that based on their company's um, risk profile. Um, they can be, do it based on, you know, shareholder desire for, for profit. Um, and not all countries have adopted um, rigorous standards for debris mitigation. 
or rigorous standards for contamination or interference. So the, the longer we wait to, to have either a new protocol to the Outer Space Treaty or an amended, some sort of amended or new treaty that uh, devises a framework or system of rules that everybody can, can reliably uh, count on, uh, something that's predictable, something that's, you know, at least relatively uh, enforceable in terms of compliance, um, the situation is likely to get worse and we could potentially lose uh, parts of GEO and, and LEO if, we're, if we aren't careful. Uh, or, you know, uh, we, we could, um, you know, there could be a loss of life as well. Doug, um, so this is Doug Legor that we're speaking to on Between the Lines, a senior behavioral and social scientist and a member of the Enterprise Space Initiative at the RAND Corporation. In your paper, you draw on the 20th century philosopher John Rawls. Tell us about his veil of ignorance idea and how that could apply to 21st century governance in space. Sure. So this is something we're, we're, we've been looking at at RAND um, in terms of trying to develop a, um, a, a framework, a methodology um, um, that the international community could apply in order to devise rules that are fair and just and equitable. So Rawls was a social contract uh, theorist and, and political philosopher. And basically, um, he's famous for this veil of ignorance thought device, which is imagine yourself going into a society that, that doesn't have any rules but you don't know what position you're going to be in that society. You don't know if you're going to be black or white. You don't know if you're going to be poor or rich. You don't know if you're going to be uh, as tall as Will Chamberlain or short and, and slow like me. Uh, you don't know what your IQ is going to be. You don't know whether you're going to be female or male. Um, you don't know anything, right? What kind of rules would you want on the other side in uh, without knowing, without having those biases. So in many ways, we're still like that. We're in this veil of ignorance with respect to space. Nobody's, for example, actually gone out and mined the moon or an asteroid yet. So we have this opportunity to sort of war game different sets of rules using this thought device trying to put ourselves, trying to remove ourselves from our biases and say, well, what, what outcomes do we really want? Uh, and, and do we want them to be fair? And if we do, then we certainly don't want to devise rules that are just going to benefit the first mover, right? Just going to benefit a Musk or a Bezos or a particular country that gets to the moon first and, and, and sits on a piece of land and starts mining water and, and, and other uh, precious elements. Uh, so that's what we're looking at trying to encourage uh, in, in our research. I mean, you also note that given the absence of rules and governance, there is a rapidly growing focus on space as a domain for conflict in a way that you say hasn't right. really been since, since, seen since the height of the Cold War. And it's true, you know, many nations are taking steps to protect, safeguard their interests, aren't they, by militarising. There's lots of space forces springing up all over the place. Will, will this trend continue? 
I, I think it will. Uh, space, uh, as you just mentioned, has been declared a warfighting domain by the United States and other countries. Um, satellites are what one general in, in the U.S. called big juicy targets. <laughs> they're not um, they're not hardened targets. They're very easy to take out, actually, because they're essentially delicate. Right. So you can use lasers, you can use different types of kinetic weapons. Um, and by taking them out, you can take take, you know, the eyes away from your your adversary. Right. Because we use our national security apparatuses are so dependent on uh, satellite communications and remote sensing uh, in, in these 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 other attributes that we use them for. Um, so. Militaries are heavily invested in space, um, which means that they're going to heavily invest in defending their space assets, both in orbit and on the ground. Um, so whenever you have military buildups, that's that can be a dangerous thing throughout history. Um, it's proven to be dangerous unless there are rules and political checks and balances uh, to mitigate against against that. Doug, thank you so much for sharing your insights and expertise today. Absolutely, Kylie. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Douglas Legor, a senior behavioural and social scientist and member of the Space Initiative at the RAND Corporation. And, of course, we'll post a link to uh, his chapter in the NATO Legal Gazette titled Nasty, Brutish and Short on the Between the Lines homepage. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for your regular host, Tom Switzer. More Between the Lines next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.